It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck. Welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here once again in the front row. Behind the scenes, as always, it's JR Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. Again, our thanks for subscribing, for watching our past episodes. We certainly appreciate you doing that. Continue to do that. More great episodes, including episode number 31. It is Jim Morris. You might know him as The Rookie. Back in 2002, the movie came out starring Dennis Quaid that talked about his life. He became a Major League Baseball player at the age of 35. A great story, but it goes way beyond that. And we get into that, the highs, the lows, and where he's at right now as he's become a great motivational speaker in his post-playing career. What a great story. Deep story as well. Certainly stick around for all this one. It is very good, very inspirational as well. Episode number 31, it's Jim Morris, the rookie. Jim, first of all, thanks for, for joining us. This is a, a treat. Obviously, you see the post in the background, the movie, The Rookie, that we're going to get into. Obviously, that is about you and about your story. But we want to dive into it here um, and really learn more about you that, that maybe the movie tells us as well, I'm sure. Um and let's start at the beginning. For you, you're born in, in Texas. Your dad was in the Navy and settled in Texas. What was it like for you growing up there? Obviously, you're, you're still in Texas now. Well, you know, Mike, I wasn't actually born here. I was born in San Diego at uh, Alboa Medical Center. And we moved constantly. Um, by the middle of my ninth grade year, I had changed schools 30 times. And constantly a new kid, constantly picked on. One saving grace for me was an education, it was sports. And, and I found that in between the white lines, I could be the kid I was supposed to be, if only for a few hours at a time. And so I gravitated towards baseball, basketball, football, track, anything I could do. Because if you've seen the movie, it shows that my father and my relationship was not very good. It was actually way worse than that. Uh, physically and verbally abusive, I was, I was the angst in his life. And and he would look at me and go, we had to get married because of you. And I'm like, wow. You know, that's why I became a science teacher later to find out, yeah, that's wrong. Liar. <laughs> <laughs> but he was such a bad person. And I don't know where those fractures came from in his life. And he just was an unhappy soul. And he loved seeing other people in pain. And I think the worst thing he ever said to me is bruises notwithstanding was he's holding my little brother in his arms and he he looks down at me right as my mom walked out of earshot and he goes this is the one we wanted we never wanted you and so for me sports was a home and i could have a team full of friends and i could be that kid who was supposed to be a kid and something that he did not allow and baseball became the love of my life because everywhere we moved whether it was in california and I'm watching Vita Blue pitch, or we're in Connecticut, and I'm watching Louis Tiant pitch. Those became my heroes because I saw them as larger than life, and I wanted to imitate them. And one thing I quickly found out as a baseball player, Vita Blue is Vita Blue. Uh, Jim Morris is not Vita Blue. And, you know, a couple of hit guys, a ball halfway at the backstop, I can't pitch like that. I think I'll try to stay within myself. But sports became my love, and that's, you know, I was either – playing the game. And then when I couldn't play anymore, I coached because 
I think there are so many lessons in baseball that coincide with life that that's what I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, you talk about your dad there and, and the tough upbringing. Without sports, where would you be, do you think? I would be lost. And actually, for something else, I would be completely lost. At 15, we were living in Miami, Florida. I went to MacArthur High School in Hollywood. And second freshman ever to make the varsity baseball team. The other freshman also played on my summer league baseball team that we got fourth in nationals on. And so I made the varsity as a freshman and I wanted to play baseball. University of Miami was already looking at me as a freshman because I could throw hard. And two weeks after the season started, my parents did the biggest favor for me they never knew they did. They moved me from their house in Miami to my grandparents' house in Brownwood, Texas. And so I've been a Texan since 15. And when I walked into my grandparents' house, which ironically, they were my father's parents, I thought, they're going to be the same as him. He came from somewhere. And when I walked into my grandparents' house, I had two rules. If you do it, own it. Own it, live up to it, and move on. Number two, tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said because the truth is the truth. And those were my two rules. And they took a 15-year-old who had been brought up in a completely abusive relationship with the father that, you know, the person who's supposed to love you and put these boundaries up for you and show you a way to success completely tore all that apart. My grandparents were the complete opposite of that. Whereas for 15 years, I watched my parents throw, hit, curse, and fight and say things you never say to another human being. My grandparents were the exact opposite of that. I never heard a cross word said. Now, you know, they were my grandparents, and so they were old school because they came up through the Depression and World War II and everything else that went along with that. They never complained about their lot in life. They never did anything to tear each other down. They never said that thing you couldn't take back. My grandparents were the perfect role models for me, and they took a kid who could have fallen off the rails and literally saved me. Well, they, they certainly did that, and, and you flourished there in, in Texas as well, right? You were really good not only in baseball, but football became your, your sport as well. How good were you in sp- football in, in a state that uh, is pretty good in football when it comes to Texas? Yeah, home of the $70 million high school stadium. Um, I played football out of necessity when I got here because our coach, who is in the high school hall of fame, Gordon Wood, he won, I think, seven state championships. We were the seventh and last team to win state at the high school. He hated baseball. I'd rather watch grass grow than watch a baseball game. So we didn't have a high school baseball team. And ironically, two years after I graduate, he retires, they get a high school baseball team. But he did teach us some important things that I carry with me to this day. He taught, he taught us it doesn't matter how big, fast, or strong you are. If you have more heart and a better plan, and a better work ethic, you're going to win. And we did. And we weren't the biggest, the fastest, or the strongest team in the state. But we won a state championship because we knew what the other team was going to do before they did it. And we were prepared and we had more heart. It wasn't if we were going to win. It was just by how much. Yeah, this was 1979 to 1982. So were you playing baseball at all? Was there travel teams at that time? There were no travel teams in Brownwood, Texas. What we had was summer league. And so you know, 10 games a summer. And what I didn't realize at the time 
was all the baseball I was getting to play in Florida was actually helping me because these kids are playing year round. And we moved to Texas and you're playing football. And for those in North Carolina who don't know this, there is one season in Texas and that is football. And it goes from August 1st through July 30th. And anything you can do in between, you're welcome to. But I had fallen behind and I didn't even realize it. You know, I'm striking out guys left and right and I'm hitting home runs. But these are the same guys that are hauling hay eight hours a day during the summer. And by the time they get to the park, they're too tired to swing a bat. And by the time I get drafted and I start playing, I realize how far behind I've actually gotten to be. Yeah, you were drafted in 1982 by the Yankees, 466th overall. You decide not to sign with them and go to college instead. Uh, Ranger, Texas, Ranger College in Ranger, Texas. Tell us about that and your experience and, and what that was like for you. You know, I wanted to stay close to home because the last two years of high school, um, my grandfather, who is the mentor of my life, I worked for him in his menswear store in Brownwood, Ernest Morris Menswear, and he tripped in the store one day and all the other men his age who were the salesmen were at lunch. And so he and I are in the store alone. He, he trips, he falls. He hops up, he acts like nothing happened. And over the next six months, cane walker, wheelchair, numerous specialists all over the country, can't find a diagnosis. And then it finally comes back, Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. And, you know, the brain works perfectly, but the body quits listening to it. And I watched the person who led a community and a state on top of his shoulders when he was healthy do the same thing from a wheelchair. He never complained. He never felt sorry for himself. He just lived life. And that's one of the things I love so much about Ernest. I thought at 18, if that would have happened to me, I probably would have hid in my closet and I wouldn't have come out. But not my grandfather. He carried that disease with a grace and dignity I did not think possible. And so by then, my father had retired from the military. He comes home. I graduate high school playing summer league, um, the game that he came to, I strike out 17 people. I hit three home runs. I strike out the last time up. And at the end of the game, he's at the end of the dugout berating me about how bad I suck because I'll never, ever make it in baseball striking out all the time. Behind him was Ranger Junior College coach Jack Allen, who had on starch jeans, starch shirt, big cowboy hat, buckle on about that big because, you know, you're in Texas. And what shocked me about him was that he could speak because he had a cigar in one side of his mouth, a chew of tobacco on the other, dip in his front lip. And I'm like, that is a lot of tobacco. <laughs> and what he said, he goes, I know your grandparents, which my grandparents knew everybody, but I thought little bitty Ranger College in Texas, how does he know them too? And I'm going to get you classes that you can pass because basically I play good enough to stay on a sports field. And my father told me how stupid I was my whole life. And so why study? And so Jack takes me in, gets me classes I can pass. Now, basket weaving was tough. I got the hang of it. <laughs> and I would go to class. This was his deal. Go to class during the week. Play baseball during the fall schedule. We have a 36-game schedule. You're going to play during the week. On the weekends, you're going to go home and spend time with your grandparents in the hospital every weekend for the fall semester. And then in the spring, 
we're going to go play baseball all over the country and we're going to win. And he was true to his word. Every weekend I went home and, you know, I did that for four and a half months. Last Sunday in November, I kissed my grandparents goodbye, told them I'd be back next Friday. I love them. And I left. I get back to my dorm room about one. At three, my coach wakes me up and he said, you need to go home. Ernest has passed away. Don't worry about finals. Talk to all the professors. You can take them when you get back. You're going to be our starting pitcher. And we're going to go attack the season. But your grandmother has done enough. You go home and you take care of her. And I've never seen a funeral that large. And people came from all over the country to pay their respects to a man they knew lived for other people. Now, whether you're in the work world or you're in the sports world, whatever endeavor you're involved in, when you find somebody that good who is living for other people, while they're also providing for their own family, I think that is a high calling. And he is one of the best people I've ever known in my life. And I would say the best, except my grandmother was just as cool as she as he was. And, you know, Ernest was 6'3", 260 pounds. He was a big man. By the time he passed away, he was under 100 pounds. Hmm. And my grandmother was 5'3". Not quite so dominant in appearance, but she is the smartest woman I've ever known in my life. She could hear music even though she couldn't read it. She could hear something on the radio, sit down at the piano and play it. And she went to Almond's College in Texas for first woman to ever make a 4.0. I mean, she... I mean, she could do trig in her head. You know, and I later found out that skips a couple generations because I did not receive that gift. But as yeah, a team, yeah. as a team, they were the incredible. The things they did for people that will never people will never know. Thanksgiving dinners, Christmas presents for families with kids that didn't know, paying a bill out of their own checking account so other people could keep their dream going on a little bit longer. And they never knew where the money came from. And my grandparents were never rich, but they always found a way to give back, which I guess in a way is rich because they helped other people along their path. Yeah, certainly they had a profound effect on you. And I know some of the things that you're doing now as well, it's coming full circle. Uh, You know, the reflection you are of your grandparents and what they did with you. So again, you're you're going through that. You're starting your season at, at Ranger obviously a good year because you get drafted again in 1983 in, in January. Uh, what were you thinking at that point? You didn't sign the first time out of high school, obviously very low round by the Yankees, but uh, this time around you do elect to sign and, and, and start your pro career. Yeah. I, w- I thought I was smart when I was 18 and the Brewers drafted me right as I turned 19. I thought I'm really smart. They gave me $35,000 to chase my dream. And I thought I am rich. And you know, for nine months I was, and they could have, my parents could have said a lot to me the last time I left Texas. Be careful. Good luck. I hope you make it. I wish you the best. You know, I love you. Don't go buy a little red sports car with that money. So after I bought the little red sports car, I drove to my first spring training. And on my way, I thought, my future's made. I already told my friends, six months, turn TV on, I'll be on TV. And when I get to spring training in Phoenix, there are 100 people there. And I think, well, man, the whole organization's here. That's awesome. And then I found out that was just the pitchers. <laughs> and I thought, hmm. And everybody's a little bit older, yeah. a lot more experienced. 
And that's when I found out exactly how far behind I had fallen in the baseball world. Because if you're not playing, you're falling behind. And I had missed a lot. Now, I think everybody should play every sport to a given degree so they know different types of teams that will instill in them the character and the determination of being a good teammate and a good player and a skilled person. But I hadn't gotten to play baseball except for a few games every summer. And so I was behind. And I was so good I didn't make any team out of spring training. I got invited to extended spring training. And I, I did okay. And then I met the team in Paintsville, Kentucky for rookie ball. They draft all the big college guys they really want, giving them real money. Season starts. I don't start the first, second, or third game. We're in Paintsville, Kentucky. Fourth game of the season. After the third game, I went up to our manager, Tom Gambo, and I go, these guys have been here for 10 days. I've been here for six months. I know everything the organization does already. I'm practice. I'm skilled. Why have I not started? You know, because it's all about me, right? And he looks at me and goes, if you do well enough, we'll change the rotation around and make you happy. And I said, thank you. And as I walked away, I muttered the words that I will always regret. I'm going to show you how good I am. And on the fourth night of the season against the Braves rookie league team, I showed everybody how good I was. Because 53 pitches into the first inning, I'd given up five home runs. Two still have not landed. I walked everybody else. I hit a guy. I don't get one out. I'm in the clubhouse. I'm crying. I'm done. This this sucks. I don't know why I chose this. I should have played football like my high school coach said. And call my mom. Mom, I made a horrible mistake. I'm quitting. I'm coming home. I'm done. I suck. She said, what will your grandfather say? What would Ernest say to someone who promised to do something and then walked away like it never existed? You're sticking it out, good or bad, till the end, no matter what happens. You're not welcome home. Don't come here. And I stuck it out. And five surgeries in six and a half years. 24, I'm in Dr. Andrew's office in Birmingham, one of the top orthopedic surgeons in the world, which I believe is because he practiced on me a lot. <laughs> and he said, Jimmy, I can fix this and put you back on the field, but the decision is yours. What do you want to do? And I said, it's time for me to grow up. Obviously, this is not what I should be doing. I'm not good. Maybe I can go home and find a group of kids teaching the exact opposite of what I did, and they'll be pretty good. I'm going to go to college. I'll get a degree. Eventually, I'll meet somebody, get married, start a family, buy a house, get a dog, grow up. That's my plan. He said, that is a great plan. Start with a dog. And <laughs> I bought a dog, and then I went to college. I found out something very important about college. You understand much better at 24 than you do when you're 18. If you had to pay for it yourself, you become smart. <laughs> and, but it also meant something to me. All my life, I've been told how stupid I was. And so why try? I'm an athlete. Why not go be an athlete? Now that didn't work. So now I'm back at education. The first class I took was a summer class in anatomy and physiology, which, you know, people don't do that to themselves. There were 19 female registered nurses and me in this summer anatomy class. We take the first test. Uh, Dr. Roth keeps me after class and everybody else leaves and he pushes my test across. I don't know what to expect. And he looks at me, he goes, you need to go to medical school. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm dumb. He said, Jimmy, 
this test right here took me a week to write up and come up with these questions. Your answers are better than the questions. You could go to medical school and totally blow it up. You need to go to medical school. That's how smart you are. When we're looking for people who want to raise us to another level, he ranks up there highly on my list because college became easy. It became fun. And I'd never given it the time of day because you're dumb. Why not believe it? Because everybody's told you that from day one. And now I got a guy going, oh, you're smart. You can do whatever you want. And honors fraternity, honors graduate school was a blast. Met my future ex-wife. Finished my last two years of college at 27 and 28, punting for Angelo State University. Led the country in punting and uh, kick touchbacks on kickoffs. And every team came through. We want to draft you. We want to draft you. I said, but I'm 28. And they're like, George Blanda played till he like 150. You could punt forever. And 5-3 hang time. I mean, I could blast the ball. And then the draft comes and goes and I don't get drafted and I'm crushed again. Kind of like, I could be an athlete still. And then it didn't happen. And it took me until the movie came out and I'm doing a speech in Corpus Christi. And this man shows up in my speech and I see him staring at me the whole night. And we were there for the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and Nolan Ryan's son Reed had come to announce they were bringing a minor league team to Corpus Christi. And I'm speaking. And then this man in the back is just staring at me the whole time. And so Reed gets up, he makes his pitch. I talk, stay after, sign autographs, take pictures. And the man who's staring at me comes up to me. He goes, do you remember me? I said, sir, I've met a lot of people since all this baseball stuff happened. He goes, no, I was your football agent when you were at Angelo. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, my daughter and I, who he, he works with his daughter, he goes, when we heard you were coming, I got your game films out and watched them again. And I came here to ask you one question. I said, ask me whatever you want. He said, 1993, when the Steelers were going to draft you in a second round to punt and kick, why'd you not call back? And I said, what are you talking about? I never got the message. Wow. And then when I didn't call back, um, they passed on me and they told everybody else I had no interest. And, you know, how many punters get drafted in the second round? Not very many. And football's over. But if I would have got that dream, I wouldn't be here talking to you <laughs> because that's a totally different road. That's crazy. That's that's a part of the story I've never heard before. And again, maybe technology being now, if it was the same back then, like you said, you, you're a punter and, and your career and your path is a lot different. But 1993, a missed call and that sets you off. So so that missed call leads to what? Then becoming a teacher. Was that the yeah. next step for you? Yeah. Um, the kid who barely got out of high school is becoming other kids science teacher. <laughs> How funny is that? And, but education had become a big part of who I am. And I think the more we read and the more we learn, the better off we are. And that's what I try to instill in all my kids. And then I've got kids who are special ed who are now teachers and they're teaching science because I don't think you should put limits on anybody. I think if somebody's capable, you just have to light that fire and find out what it is that makes them go. 
And uh, we can achieve a whole lot more than what we give ourselves credit for. And so I'm very proud of those kids who are now older than I was when I went back to try out and don't think they don't remind me of that. Um, but yeah, being a teacher and a coach, that was fun for me because I got to teach baseball the way I wanted to teach it. And I wanted to teach it in a way that it did not get taught to me. And so my grandfather, and my grandmother taught me lessons, man. My grandfather would look at me and goes, don't ever ask anybody else to get dirty if you're not already dirty yourself. He goes, because they're not going to listen to you. He goes, unless you're willing to walk that walk with them, you can talk all you want to, but that talk's not going to mean anything. And so for my kids, I would run with them. I would throw them batting practice every day. Um, I became very skilled at throwing batting practice and watching people's swings more so than I could from behind a screen. And so being out in front of them, I could tell them what they're doing and coach them on the fly. And but we would do drills and we would make practice fun. And we would have our serious parts, like when the kids thought it'd be funny to kill a rattlesnake and put it underneath my seat on the bench and then scream like little girls telling me, snake, snake. Yeah, if they could, I'd still be having them run. Um, <laughs> snakes are like my mortal enemy. and But great kids. And I joke with them and they joke back. And I'd been screamed at, cursed at, and yelled at and hit my entire life. And I did not want that for these kids because the easiest way, and I know because I did it, is to scream, curse, and yell. And it goes in one ear and out the other because you're just like everybody else and all you want to do is order us around. No, I want to make people better. And I'm not talking down to anybody, but I can talk to anyone. And that was my philosophy. That's what I went after. Uh, my kids won on the field. My kids excelled in the classroom. And teaching was a lot of fun. So, so that leads to 1999, right? This is when the, the promise was out there. Your kids, a chance to maybe win a championship, and you told them what? If that happens, what were you going to do? I didn't tell them anything. They told me, <laughs> if we win a championship, you try out again. See, in the back of my mind, I'm like, you had nine surgeries on your arm. You weigh 260 pounds. The moms are making you fresh homemade tortillas with honey every time you get on a bus. That is not a playing diet. That's a coaching diet. And... It ended up being, if you guys win a championship, I will try out. In the back of my mind, I'm going, you're old and fat, and it's going to be embarrassing. But if it gets these kids to do something that nobody thought they could do, including themselves, I can embarrass myself for a few minutes. Why not? And so the kids who could not hit me at the beginning of the year, three months later, I can't get these 16 and 17-year-old kids out. And the last thing I thought was, I will go impress a major league scout. And let's not forget the fact that at 28, I had a surgery in which the doctor said, you will never, ever pitch again physically impossible. This bone spur you had running up your humerus frayed your deltoid so bad, I had to cut 85% of your deltoid out. You have nothing left to pitch with. You're done. And I didn't care. I was teaching and coaching. Well, all right, I can do that. And then by the end of the season in 99, the kids are hitting me all over the park. And I'm like, yeah, my doctor was right. Can't even get high school kids out. They win a championship. I go to a tryout. 
with my three kids in tow, eight, four, and one. Nobody will even play catch with me at the tryout. And he's a crazy old dude, man. Everybody's like 18 to 24. Um, their parents are my age. That's how old I am. Where, where was and, the tryout? Was it, was it in Texas? Yeah, it was at Howard Payne University in Brownwood where, you know, my high school year, years were played out. Yeah. And it was an hour and 10 minutes away from San Angelo where I lived at the time. I will go to the tryout, embarrass myself, go home, tell my kids, you know what? I did it. It was embarrassing. You did your part. I did mine. Let's move on. And what happened was all the young guys threw like 20 pitches. Hey, have me. I'm throwing like 60. I'm like, all right, I am old and fat. <laughs> You're laughing at me. This is not funny anymore. And then Doug Gasway, the scout, who was about 70 at the time, he looks at this kid because everybody else had tried out. He made me go last. He tells this kid, he goes, go get your bat out of the car and get in the box. And this kid looks at him. He goes, you want me to get in the box against that? And I thought one of two things is going on. This is even more embarrassing than I ever could have realized. Or I'm not doing that bad. And when I finally get done, the 19-year-old kid catching me runs up to me. He goes, sir, which hurt my feelings quite a bit. <laughs> he said, you're throwing better than anybody. I said, son, that's because nobody here could throw. He said, no, you had him talking back there. And I said, I'm sure I did. Thank you. He wished me luck. He runs off. I put the kids in the car, turn the air on for him. Doug Gasway meets me in my car. He goes, I remember you. At Ranger Junior College, you were a football star. Everybody wanted to make a picture out of I said, yes, sir. He said, back then you threw 87 or 88. And I said, yeah. He goes, I don't know what you've done your time off aside from eat, which, you know, make fun of the fat guy. But the first pitch you threw without warming up was 94. Everything after that went up to 98. Wow. The first part of me is stunned because there's a happy dance going on between your ears, right? You're like, I throw gas. <laughs> the second thing that went on is you've been throwing 98 miles an hour at high school kids. You're getting sued is what you're getting. <laughs> yeah. And he said, look, you're old. And I said, well, thanks. You know, I don't know what you've done your time off aside from eat. But you throw hard and I got to call it in. He goes, you were 35 when you came here. I'm calling in a 32-year-old lefty. I said, if I come back again, can I be 29? <laughs> he kind of giggled at me. He goes, don't be surprised if you get a phone call. By the time I got home, it wasn't one, it was 12. And they wanted me to come back in two days to see if I could throw as hard as Gasway said I could throw. I called my high school kids, tell them what happened. I said, they want me to come back and try out again in two days. Now, this is where walk and the walk and talk and the talk separate. My kids told me, coach, you told us if we ever had our dream in front of us, you chase it no matter what. But, Mike, this is a dream I had failed at every single time when I was supposed to be young and talented. Now for baseball, I am way over the hill. How could this be good for me? In the meantime, I've got this job in Fort Worth at a great big high school and the opportunity to work with more kids in a bigger environment. That's what I'm good at. I'm successful at that. That's what I'm doing. And so I tell my kids that and they're like, no, you told us chase your dream. And I said, well, I was lying. <laughs> so two days later, it rained so bad they had to hand me a brand new baseball every pitch. My half my high school team is there and they're watching my kids this time. 98 every pitch in the mud. Signed a contract, minor league contract. I took a pay cut from teaching to play minor league baseball, which is pretty hard. And then for the next three months, 
I get to be a kid again at the age of 35. I'm playing the game I love. I'm watching youngsters do it, and everybody's baseball is a different animal by now. The first time around, back in the early 80s, it was run, 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 run. We're in Phoenix, it's 120. We got rubber tops on, we're running. No lifting. And then when I come back, it's all lifting and sprinting with no long distance running, and it's just a different game. And and I'm having a blast. And my kids are keeping up with me. And the IT teacher at my school in Big Lake, she's got her classroom open, letting all the kids listen to me over the internet, which sounds funny now, but back then that was cool. <laughs> and they're listening to me pitching AAA. And it is the funniest thing. Let me tell you about my first game back in the minor league. For three weeks of the best diet I'd ever want to be on again in Florida, they get me in shape for baseball. They send me to Zebulon, North Carolina, where the Orlando Rays are playing. They bring me into the game. There's a guy on first. Can you imagine what I did before I ever threw a pitch? <laughs> Hyperventilate? I think I was too stupid to hyperventilate. <laughs> what I did do, when my catcher gives me a sign, I come set. The guy on first makes a, a jab towards second. I balk before I ever throw a pitch. The guy who teaches kids not to balk just did it. Yeah. And I'm like, and so I start laughing, right? And so my catcher calls timeout and he goes, what are you laughing about? And I tell him, he starts laughing. Ray Seard is our pitching coach. Bill Russell's our manager. <laughs> they both come out and they're like, what are you laughing at? And I said, I'm supposed to coach this stuff out of kids. And I did it. <laughs> so they start laughing. The umpire comes out. He starts laughing. We're all having a big hee-haw. So I pick the guy off at second. I strike out the guy. 91, 92, they're like, hey, it's pretty good. He's not crazy. It's all right. Second night in double A, 98, 99, strike out five people in two innings, triple A the next day. And so for the next two months, I'm watching guys on their way up, on their way down, and guys just trying to hold on. When you're 18 or 19, I don't think you understand the gravity of the athletic ability it takes to be at that level. And you just know it's your passion and you want to go do it. And if it happens, great. But when you're 35, you know what life is about and life gets hard and raising a family and coaching kids and teaching kids and trying to do the right thing. And now you're getting that chance to be a kid again, if only for the summer. It was incredible. And I could have not gotten called up and that still would have been one of the best summers of my life because I'm getting to play the game I love. Yeah, things were happening pretty fast here. Like you said, the tryout, then you get signed, you go to double A, quickly to triple A as well. We're, we're, did you have time to take it all in at all during that 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 quick, quick run that you had? You know what, our, our PA uh, lady who met me at the gate every day and you know, one one interview before the game was normal. And then it quickly turned into, all right, before you get dressed, you have these two interviews. After you get dressed, before you stretch, you have these interviews. After stretching, during batting practice, you have these interviews. And oh yeah, there's gonna be boom microphones in the bullpen listening to you either say or not say anything. Okay. And it just, I her job became incredibly hard uh, because of me. and. There were times during that I thought, I'm not making enough money to pay the bills. 
I got a job waiting for me in Fort Worth at a great big high school. Football season starting. I am the assistant football coach, head baseball coach. I need to be home. I need to be learning who these kids are, what these kids are about, and how I can best teach them. And I'm busy being a kid again. And so there were a couple different instances when I wanted to quit. And um, faith is a big part of my life. And, you know, there were a lot of prayers. And is this what I should do? Let me know. If it's not, man, let me know. Because I need to get home and take care of my kids. And, and oh, yeah, get back to that thing that I'm good at. Because this thing here, I failed at every single time. And every time the answer would be, you're doing what you need to be doing. You're staying here. And so for two months, I stuck it out. We get in the playoffs. I'm doing better. I'm getting used to and accustomed to, okay, these guys have seen a fastball. What can you do with it? And, well, what about your slider? And, well, what about your split? And start mixing stuff up a little bit. And if you're not throwing strikes, they're going to wait on one pitch. And... By the end of the season, I got pretty good. And we're playing the White Sox, uh, Charlotte, in Charlotte Knights AAA playoffs. If we win this series, we go to the AAA World Series. Down to the last game, Bobby Munoz was one of my best friends in AAA. And he and I, he's from he was from Texas. We were going to ride back to Texas together in his pickup. I didn't have a car there. I had barely gotten a cell phone, and now the season's ending. I got to get back to start football, and Bobby and I are making our plans to drive there. All our stuff is in his pickup. If we win this game, we go to the AAA World Series, and I guess we'll just take our stuff back home. It's 2-1 to one when I came in. It's 2-1 to one when he came out. We lost. Season's over. And I'm at my locker in Charlotte, and the manager comes up to me. He goes, I need to talk to you. Now, you've talked to me for a little bit, and – I am sarcastic, I guess, is the best term to use. It could be worse than that, I suppose. But I looked at my manager. I go, I don't think so. And he said, why not? And I said, because the last six guys you talked to are all crying right now. <laughs> I choose not to cry. And he laughs at me. He goes, come on. And I'm walking to his office, and I got my head down. I'm not sad. I'm not upset. I'm processing in three months how far I'd gotten in baseball when the first time in five and a half years, yeah. I didn't go anywhere, not even out of A-ball. And now because of a group of kids who pushed me when I pushed them and we made each other better, I'm at the doorstep of a dream. And even if I don't make it, I went and took a chance on it because I told those kids, go chase your dream. And now I know I won't wake up one day and go, what if? And so I'm processing all this. I walk in, our big league general manager is there and he goes, you can smile. You're going to be in Texas tomorrow. And it didn't hit me. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Bobby and I are going there right now. He said, no, the big league team is in Arlington playing the Rangers and there's a uniform waiting on you. And I'm stunned. I just I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. All because of a group of kids. I'm achieving this dream long past any time when I should be. Next day, they fly me into Arlington along with some other guys. Um I have to sign my contract before I can walk into the doors of the clubhouse. They gave me more meal money for 10 days than I made in a month and a half teaching. And I thought I could get used to this real easy. And, and then when I walk in, the first person I see is Wade Boggs. Wow. And they've heard about the crazy science guy for three months now. 
And he walks up, Wade Boggs walks up, who just gotten his 3,000th hit a few weeks before. He hugs me, he goes, man, that is the best story I've ever heard. I'm still a fan and a coach. I'm like, you're Wade Boggs, you like chicken. <laughs> you know, and he laughs, he walks off. And Roberto Hernandez, Fred McGriff, Jose Canseco, all these guys I'm watching on TV, now they're my teammates. All because I lived up to a bet. and. It's priceless. Johnny Oates, the opposing manager, got arrested. So let 150 people in the game that day that had ties to me. Or people I went to college with that showed up, people who said they went to high school with me that showed up, and I have no idea who they were. But even coaches who I'd coached against that year had gotten school buses in the middle of the night and brought their kids nine hours to watch the coach who made a bet and lived up to it. That to me meant more than anything. Get to see my kids for the first time in three months, get to see my high school kids. And it was just, if you have a dream in your mind, your mind can't comprehend what it's actually like to go through in real time because it is the most amazing thing. At a time when I should have been out of game, I'm getting in the game. If I'd have got that dream at 19, I'd have taken it for granted like a lot of youngsters do because it's just too easy. But at 35, having tried and failed and tried and failed and then gone on and did something else and then had that dream come back later, I didn't take anything for granted. I get the ballpark first, be the last one to leave, talking to everybody who had talked to me. Baseball is a fantastic game and it's seen us through so much of our history in this country. And I wish we would respect it for what it is and the talent level that it takes not only to get there, but to stay there man, you've got to be on an even keel to maintain that. Well, as you said, you're, you're older going to school, so you kind of respected that process a little bit more. You were paying for it, and now you're going through the, the process of becoming a pro athlete at an older age, and, and certainly the respect there uh, shows as well. Tell me about that, you know, your debut, September 18th, 1999, as you said, back in Texas, where, uh, again, if this wasn't made into a movie, like, people wouldn't believe it you know, all this stuff that happened and everything that coincided to get you back to the major leagues and to get you there in your home state of Texas is incredible. It is. And I, you know, for, this is how naive I was, right? I'm in the bullpen talking to big league pitchers about how to pitch the guys I might one day face. Not today. You know, I've thrown three days in a row in the AAA playoffs, including my last two games of two innings apiece. And so I'm like, there is no way they're throwing me today. So for eight innings, I'm sitting there just talking to these guys, taking it all in. My my name on the back of my jersey on a big league in a big league stadium. And which is funny, Mike, because a few years before I'd set at the ballpark in Arlington down the left field line, watching these guys play this game on a perfectly manicured field, thinking, man, if I just could have made it there. And now a few years later, here I am, I'm on that manicured field. And I've got my name and my number on my back. And I'm on a big league team talking to big league players. And so for eight innings, I take it in. Everybody's coming down the bullpen, high five, hugging me, taking pictures. And then in the eighth inning, the phone rings in the bullpen are like, Morris, warm up. And I'm like, oh, they just want me to warm up in front of 40,000 people. That's cool. Two minutes later, I'm in the game. 
Now this is where all the senses go in extrasensory. I warm up and they pull me in as I leave the bullpen and open the door to come in. Everything I've been through my entire life flashed in front of me, good decisions, bad decisions, all of it. And then the smell, the dirt and the smell of the grass and the smell of the leather, popcorn, beer, Cokes, all of it. You can smell all that and your senses are there. And then to see all the colors in the stands, it's like overwhelming sense wise. And, you know, I've heard people talk about this. When you're in the zone, nothing else matters. It just closes in on you. And I'm hearing people scream and yell and I'm seeing colors and I'm all these smells. And as I get further from left field into the infield and then eventually to the dirt, came to one conclusion. When I stepped my spikes onto the dirt of the mound, the ballpark in Arlington, I came to one conclusion. I would not change one thing about my journey because that's my journey. And there was a lot of sacrifice and there was a lot of failure to get to this success. And I still wouldn't have been smart enough to do it myself. It took a group of 16, 17, 18 year old kids to get me back out here. And for that, I will forever be thankful. And Larry Rothschild's our manager, hands me the ball. He says something. I guess I laugh because after the game, my best friend, the big leagues, was Roberto Hernandez. He and I are sitting in a locker room and he goes, what were you laughing about when Larry brought you in? I said, what are you talking about? He said, he gave you the ball. He said something to you. You died laughing. What did he say? I have no idea what that man said to me. I was petrified. <laughs> I thought, don't throw the ball in the backstop. Don't hit Royce Clayton to start a brawl. Other than that, we're good to go. He laughs. But I warm up and I find out, you know what, just because there's 40,000 people around doesn't mean that the distance still isn't 60 feet, six inches. And Tom Goodwin's a run at first, very fast guy. Royce Clayton's an all-star that year. He's up. Steps into the box. John Flaherty, my catcher, calls for a fastball. I come set. I check on Goodwin. He swings through at 95, strike one. Takes a second pitch, strike two, 95. Third pitch fouls off over the first base dugout and check swing strikes out on the fourth pitch. Unbelievable. And, you know, I, I compare it to all the time on the movie set. And even the movies couldn't replicate it, right? Because we tried for eight hours to get the guy to foul the ball off. And after eight hours, the director looked at me and said, you struck him out in three pitches. <laughs> All right. But as I walk towards the dugout, Flaherty meets me at the top steps and flips his glove over. He goes, hey, coach, you may want this. And it was the ball that I struck out Royce on. And it was just surreal. And even now, he's 58 and surreal and looking back at it. Not only the baseball thing, but how far those kids in Big Lake have actually gone with their lives. And not only that, but a movie, Dennis Quaid playing you, and everything that goes with that, a 20-plus year speaking career, traveling around the world, meeting people, and hopefully inspiring and motivating them to go and chase that next thing. Because I trust you don't want to wake up one day and go, what if? What if I'd have tried one more time? And I learned that from a group of teenagers. It's amazing. I mean, again, you, the what you did to them and for them, obviously you're getting it back uh, tenfold. 
from that promise that that made you promise to to try out. So, you know, the, the four pitches, the strikeout there. You had four more appearances, sixteen appearances, I believe, in 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 two thousand as well. Eventually retire, but you look back at it. I mean, it's a short career because you started so late, but just to have a career is incredible. And then the the book comes out and that leads to the movie. How did that all transpire getting from the book to the movie? Uh, because again, a lot of this stuff, it's unbelievable that, ah, uh, yeah, it's, it's movie magic, but it sounds like a lot of this stuff is 100% accurate and what happened in your actual life. It's amazing. It was kind of cool. Steve Kenner was my baseball agent. He's a guy I met in double A the night I struck out five people. He goes, you're going to need an agent. And I said, I'm 35 years old. I'm an old guy. I don't need an agent. I'll be coaching football in the fall. He said, Jimmy, this is going to end up being a movie. I'm like, get out of here. He goes, everybody's going to call you. They're going to come out of the woodwork. And he leaves me a blank contract. And he goes, when you get tired of the phone calls, sign this contract and tell me it's in the mail. And two days in a AAA, I signed the contract, I put it in the mail, and I called him. And I went, make the phone call stop. I mean, people were offering me ridiculous stuff. You can play tennis with whoever you want to. And if you sign with us, and you could play golf with Tiger Woods. And I'm like, that's the last thing Tiger Woods needs is somebody like me hitting him with a golf ball trying to hit it the other way. Um, no. And so I signed a contract with Steve. And so by the time we get to the book deal, they are actually hand in hand. And Steve said, I'm going to get you two paydays. We're going to do the book deal simultaneously doing the movie deal. And so that's what we did. And when we film the movie, Disney buys the rights to the paperback and puts their art on the front cover. And so that's how it became, went from the oldest rookie to the rookie. And it's been fantastic. And you know what? I There are so many talented people out there who give up just a fraction too early. And I just remember looking back over my career and seeing people who I thought had the most talent on the field at a given time. And hardly any of those players ever made it to the big leagues because they're all sitting at home going, what happened? They either didn't put in enough work or they gave up too easily or they got hurt or they just didn't have the mental capacity to go, this is a gift. I'm able to play a game and make a living. That's huge. You're going to need to play a game and make an obscene amount of money playing a game as an adult. So there's a lot of talent sitting at home. So the book's in 2001. The movie comes out in 2002. Did you have any say in who was going to play you? You know, they ran people across me. And I mean, everybody, They, I'm like, who wants to play an old fat guy? And they're like, you have no idea, man. All these A-list actors. And so I bite them like anybody else. All right, who wants to play me? He's like, Brad Pitt. Oh, I could look like that. <laughs> and Matthew McConaughey, Aaron Eckhart, and Jim Caviezel. And I met Jim Caviezel and his beautiful wife on a plane flight to New York. And he sees me as he walks on the plane and he goes, I almost got to play you, but Dennis beat me. And I'm like, dude, you're way too good looking to play me. (laughs) And 
you know, and because of my grandparents' faith, I got faith. And so I thought this part was funny. I looked at him, I go, you're too pretty. And then like two years later, he played Jesus. And I thought, oh, dude, you missed out. So it's just cool things. And you meet a lot of really nice people. And if we were all talented in the same field, it'd be a pretty boring world. But everybody's got these specific talents. It's when you explore those and you put them into use. I think we can grow into something else. My grandfather always told me that. He goes, you're going to go through and you're going to see all these doors of opportunity if you don't have your head down. Because if you concentrate on too much from point A to point B, you may miss something that you're going to love doing more than you what you thought you actually were going after in the first place. And he was absolutely right. Well, 20 years, again, since that movie, a little bit more since the, the entire experience. Now you go around the country, you're inspirational speaker. You've got a new book coming out as well, or, or that's out right now, Dream Makers. So sounds like we heard about some of those dream makers. I, I've seen some stuff and you talked about it, your dad, kind of a, a dream killer as well. Uh, tell us a little more, bit more about the book and, and kind of what led to to that and, and you know the name as well, the dream makers and, and who else are some of the dream makers in your life? Yeah. Okay. That's the book. And it's got a feather on the front and I'm going to have to read chapter 10 for that. And I don't want, I'm not looking for guff from anybody. I, you know what? Faith is a big part of my life. I don't push on anybody else, but let's go back to 2001. I signed with the Dodgers. Um, Dr. Job saw what kind of condition I was in and told the doctors I was in great condition. They need to sign me. They did. And so for the winter of 2000, going into 2001, I work out at Chavez Ravine, or I'm at his clinic with a physical therapist, getting myself in a top shape. And I'm lifting, I'm throwing, I'm hitting, I'm running. I leave, I leave pre-spring training and go to spring training in Vero Beach. This whole thing doesn't take five days. I go through Texas, see my kids for a little bit, drive on to Vero Beach. In less than five days, I went from throwing 98, painting the black, to being afraid to play catch. And I called my agent, and I told him what was going on. And so immediately we put out there, you know, what what can you do? And go, oh, well, it's an old arm injury that spotted up. And, and even Dr. Joe played into it with me. And I didn't want any, anybody to know that I'm afraid to throw a ball up there a hundred and somebody may hit it back at me like Stanton 120. And over the next 15 years, Sean and I traveled around seeing all these specialists. And the first thing I thought was, Oh my God, my grandfather died of Lou Gehrig's disease. Is that what I have? And no, eventually I get diagnosed with Parkinson's. They do this radiation test and do an MRI on my brain, no dopamine on the right side which were all the symptoms on the left, and that's what it means. All right, I have Parkinson's. We sat there and cried in my neurosurgeon's office because, not because we were sad, but because we had an answer. I'm not crazy. I knew all this stuff was going on. I mean, even when we were filming, it was like overnight. I've got the phone back when the cell phones were about that big, right? And so Dennis and I are going through an airport, and I'm looking at my phone. All of a sudden, I can't see the numbers on the phone. I'm like, what is going on? And then I would get a sinus infection. I would get a headache. And then the headache would last from January 1st to June 1st. And then go away for like three days. And on June 4th, I'm like, this is what life is supposed to be like. And on June 5th, 
I would get a sinus infection, my neck would lock up, and then another headache for six months. And so I was on the pain spectrum of Parkinson's and actually uh, the leading movement specialist in the world diagnosed me with CTE-induced Parkinson's. And I said, how do you prove CTE? He goes, well, you have to die. And I said, well, I'm not quite ready to do that. They give me medicine. It kind of curves the symptoms. I couldn't smell. I couldn't taste. So I quit cooking. I was a family cook, man. I like to cook. I cook for an army. And now I could care less because I can't taste. If I put garlic salt in there, they may not be able to eat it because it's way too much salt. And I just got frustrated and I got down. I'm like, after all this stuff and now all this is happening. And then I started going to speeches and I couldn't button the buttons on my dress shirts and I couldn't tie my tie. And so Shauna started traveling with me. Thank God our youngest kid is the most mature kid because her whole senior year, she guarded our house for us and she took care of it better than we did. But yeah. it had not been for her. I'm, I'm not able to go out and speak and I would go do my speeches, but in between because of the headaches, I'm sleeping before I'm sleeping after I'm sleeping on the way home. Then I would get home and pretty much sleep until the next time I had to go get on a plane. And that was, that was our paradigm for, for years. And so the medicine they give me to curb all that helps me smell, helps me taste, makes my movement a little bit better, but it kills my stomach. So then you have gastric bypass. Then they had to put in a brain stimulator. And so I got, I had two electrodes put in up here with a battery pack on my chest. Do you know how much TSA loves a battery pack on your chest? They love it a lot. And so I'm doing that, but it helps. It's a, it was so immediate. My doctor goes, we're not going to see anything immediately. This is like a honeymoon phase. Your body's getting used to it. We're not even going to turn it on for a couple of weeks. Immediately, I woke up. The, the hospital had too many people in it. And so the recovery room was way overpacked. And I can smell the lady next to me peeing in her bedpan. And that's the first thing I've smelled in years. And I'm like, I can smell. They finally get me to my room. My wife had gone and gotten Italian food. And I can smell that, but I'm too afraid to tell her because I'm like, oh, this is probably going to go away. And on the way home, I went, I could smell what you had in the room. She said, but you were asleep. I said, I could smell the Italian food. And she goes, and she just started crying. And could button my buttons. I could walk upstairs at airports now. I'm not having to escalator up and escalator down. And it helped with so much that the brain stimulator did and deep brain stimulator. But when they're talking to you about a pain syndrome, what goes along with that? And I'm hitting the new book, so I hope you're, you're okay with that. For 20 years, people have gone, we love the movie. We love the book. We love Dennis playing you. It's a great story. What has happened since baseball? A lot. 77 surgeries. Mm. And the only elective surgery I ever had was in 2020. And that was to have the brain stimulator taken out. And I, people are going, well, why would you do that? Well, for years, the doctors were handing out opioids back when they were huge, right? 
I'm not overtaking them, but I'm taking them, but they're not working. The headache's still knocking me sideways. So what can I do? I think I will add my own prescription with my doctorate and go, vodka will help those painkillers work. And then I don't remember the whole week of Christmas in 2016. And so on December 26th, 2016, I wake up in rehab and I'm like, it got real, real quick because you do not want to be 52 years old and have to do naked jumping jacks to see if anything falls out of your body that's not supposed to be there. But I think for the first time in my life, I got to concentrate on just me, not a wife, not a family, not a group of kids on a baseball field, not any kids in a classroom, but me. And there was a lot of damage done to me with the relationship between my father and myself. And a lot of that had to be repaired. And I'd never paid it any mind. I just tried to rough ride it all the way through my life. And now I'm being forced to face it. And so when I get out of there, literally the day after I get out of rehab, I go to Minnesota for a speech. And when I walk back to the green room, every liquor bottle imaginable is open. Wow. And they're like, everybody's been drinking all day. Go ahead. And it didn't even tempt me. I'm like, no you know what? I'm good. And then over the next four months, I start turning down the battery. Right. And I get to a point where I'm close to turning it off, but not really. And my wife holds it up and she hits something and she was too close to me. And I fall over and hit the side of our master closet. And she's apologizing. I'm trying to collect my wit. She turns it back on and my brain straightens out. Literally a week later, and I don't want to give everything away, but let's just say faith has a lot to play with it. I turn the battery off, and for the first time in 15 years, I close my eyes and I turn a circle, a complete circle with my eyes closed, and I don't fall over. Hmm. I mean, I had to get rid of my favorite dog because he kept getting under my feet, and I would trip over him. And he busted teeth. Another concussion. That's what you need when you have CTE, right? And and now I've turned it off. And the process by which we got to that point is pretty pretty cool. And so in 2020, he took it out. They redid all the brain scans with the nuclear fluid. Pretty sure that stuff's not good for you either. But your dopamine levels are fine. You don't have Parkinson's. Make me do all the physical tests. You don't have Parkinson's. My neurosurgeon is a man of faith. He's like. God can do anything. Yeah. My neurologist, not, right? And so she's like, this is impossible. I'm like, but I'm right here. She goes, this does not happen ever. You see all those people out in my waiting room? Those are your people. And this is a lady who's gone, it's just Parkinson's. You're just going to get sicker. You're just going to get sicker. So why'd you end up in rehab? Cause you're just going to get sicker and you're just looking for some comfort. And if you can make yourself not think about it for a moment, maybe you won't get sicker. And now this is the same lady who makes me do all the physical tests and the brain scan. And she goes, you don't have Parkinson. I know she takes a picture with me and, and then doctors started avoiding me because all the people who said, you'll never get better. Now I'm better. And we can't discount the power of the human mind or the heart. And I think we've 
we're bringing up a group of kids now where we're taking away all the mistakes. We're making everything even keel and going, there are no mistakes. Do what you want that makes you feel good. It's all right. And when you do that, you're not preparing these kids for the first time that they hear no. Yeah. And when we do that, we're doing them a huge disservice and we're ruining them because they're going to fail. And they're not even going to know why, because that was bred into them. When you give guidelines and you tell what is expected of somebody and you're willing to live up to that end of the bargain on your side and do those things that you're telling these kids to do, they'll respect you a whole lot more and they'll break their back for you. Well, Jim, it's amazing. There's so much more to you than just the movie, The Rookie. I'm, I'm glad you spent some time with us here today to share your story, an incredible story, what you're doing now. Uh, and again, what you came through to be the person that you are, is, it's just amazing. I can see why you're such a good motivational speaker and, and why uh, folks need to go out and get uh, that new book. Again, Dream Makers, uh, surround yourself with the best to be your best. Uh, excited to, to check that book out myself as well. And, uh, and I can't thank you enough for, for spending some time with us here this afternoon. Yes, sir. Keep chasing those kids around the country, man. Help them win. There you go. We'll, we'll try. We'll try our best. But, Jim, best of luck to you. Again, thanks for sharing your story with us. And uh, uh, how can people follow you? Are you on social media? Can people follow you that way? I could go. Yes, I am on social media. My wife helps me with it. So we're both on social media. Um, I'm working with my marketing guy. And we're going to be doing more. But JimTheRookieMorris.com. They can book me. They can get a book. Whatever it is you guys want. But we're also working on some leadership qualities that I think uh, need to be brought back to the forefront instead of going, everything is okay. You know what? Some things are not okay. And and be brave about it and not be afraid of the hard topics. And so there'll be more expanding on Instagram and, and Twitter and anything else that comes up. YouTube, you know, people can watch me speak on YouTube all they want. Uh, there are clips from all kinds of things. The key is if something is in your heart and you want to go chase it then get after it, man, you don't want to wake up one day and go, what if I'd have tried? Because then you'll never know the answer. If you do it and you fail, at least, you know. Well, my thanks to Jim for joining us here today, sharing his story. It is an incredible story that goes way beyond the movie, The Rookie. Check out the new book right now, Dream Makers as well. Go back and check out The Rookie, the book and the movie. And you see, it doesn't stray too much from his actual story that he shared with us here today. Again, thanks for joining us, Jim Morris, and again, his wife, Shauna Morris, for helping arrange that. We thank you, as always, for watching and listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. More great episodes coming up. Don't want to miss it. It is In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.